and welcome to No Easy Answers in Bioethics, the podcast from the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today, we're joined by Center Director Dr. Tom Tomlinson and Center Assistant Professor Dr. Devin Stahl. Dr. Tomlinson and Dr. Stahl discuss the patient preference predictor, their work in progress that relates to making decisions regarding patient care and that has potential to be a tool that could supplement advanced directives and surrogate decision makers. Let's have a listen to learn more. Uh, Well, uh, hello. Um, My name is Tom Tomlinson. Um, I'm the director of the Center for Ethics and Humanities and Life Sciences at Michigan State University. Uh, I have been working in bioethics for 35 years. It seems longer sometimes. And my name is Devin Stoll. I'm an assistant professor of clinical ethics here in the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences, and I have been here for two years, so not quite as long as Tom. (laughs) Right. I hope you will be here as long as I am. Yes, I hope so too. All right. Um, So I'm going to start us off by, we're going to talk today about patient preference predictors, or PPP. Um, No snickering, please. (laughs) Um, so, the, what, what are patient preference predictors? What's the idea behind them? So, the idea is that um, is to wonder whether or not it's possible to use a nationally representative sample, probably a very large sample of people, to um, see if there are associations that you can find between their preferences regarding a variety of, of life-sustaining treatments uh, at the end of life or, or, or if they are demented, say, um, and various demographic and other characteristics that they might have. So that um, if, such, if a patient were to be in a hospital, say, and you didn't know anything about them, you'd be able to uh, use the information you did have about them, their age, their, their background, their, their race, um, uh, uh, their educational level, their income. There will be a whole variety of factors that might be relevant from a statistical point of view so that you could predict with some degree of confidence what they would want with regard to being put on a ventilator, say, or with regard to whether they're going to be resuscitated if their heart stops. So that's the basic idea behind a patient preference predictor is the potential usefulness of such a tool um, you know, in the hospital or other healthcare setting. I'll just add in there that, um, and I think we'll come to this when we talk about some of the debates about the PPP, but um, so the socio-demographic factors that people would typically think of in a survey will be applicable. Um, we might also ask about their current attitudes and values. So, you know, what kinds of things do they value and how could we sort of quantify that or qualify that for, for future use of the PPP? Um, we might also even ask about their relative personal experience with medicine. So if a person has ever been medically hospitalized or if they um, have experiences caring for somebody who's been incapacitated by their illness, that might affect how they um, sort of imagine their future 
being incapacitated and needing medical care. Yeah, or, or they have a chronic illness. Right, um, right. Or, or something like that, which might, you know, intuitively at least might be associated or have some influence over their attitudes toward various life-sustaining treatments. Right, and then we'd also ask things, you know, like what what do you value most? And we'd have to, we're figuring out ways to ask that. But if someone is particularly religious and that might mm-hmm. influence how they respond to mm-hmm. these or, you know, that family's the most important thing for them or maybe it's not. So those might be also things that we can ask about to help get um, more refined about the kind of person we're dealing with and how we might generalize information about particular groups of folks. Yeah, so, um, you know, just from a methodological point of view, there are huge complexities um, and difficulties in the way of actually accomplishing this. Um, but I think for today, we're going to sort of set those to one side and assume that it is possible um, to construct something like a patient preference predictor um, with some degree or other of um, reliability. Right, so Tom, I bet people are thinking, well, why do we need something like this? Because we already have these things called advanced directives. We have living wills in which you are able to say exactly what kinds of treatments you might want in the future if you were to become incapacitated. And those are documents that our doctors should be following. And we can even assign certain people, so surrogate decision makers, to be our proxies during that time. So people that are close to us that we think could make good decisions for us you know, that's a sort of really easy way to get across what we might want in the future. So why would we need something like a patient preference predictor if we have these really solid documents saying exactly what an individual would want? Are you asking me or are you going to tell me? Well, I might tell you too. <laughs> I just wanted to phrase it okay. as, a, as a hypothetical there. But um, I think we can think of a lot of good reasons why this might be helpful um, beyond advanced directives. So first to just say, most people don't have advanced directives. Um, Only 20 to 30% of the population has even filled out a living will, and that's after decades of of really promoting the living will. So the Federal Patient Self-Determination Act was passed something around the early 1990s, maybe even 1990, which requires hospitals and healthcare institutions to ask about people's advanced directives. So there's been an effort ongoing to encourage the creation of advanced directives for at least that long. Right, and it, and you know, numbers have gone up if, when there's been a big push by certain groups to kind of try to get more people to fill out these documents, and sometimes it works, but in general, it just seems like most people don't have physical documents stating what it is that they would want in the future. So this is gonna work for you know most people because most people don't have advanced directives. So we need some other kinds of evidence about what they might want. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also know that even when patients do have advanced directives, sometimes they're vague. So it's hard to predict. Sometimes? Ex- well, lots of times, okay. <laughs> uh, lots of times they're vague. And, and Tom and I know this from working as clinical ethics consultants in our hospitals, that it's very hard to predict exactly you know, when you're going to need these advanced directives. So what are the conditions you're going to be in when you lose capacity? That's hard to predict. And it's also hard to really wrap your mind around the kinds of life-sustaining treatments we're talking about. So most people still don't really understand what it means to be intubated, what it means to be on a ventilator, what a feeding tube does. These things are they're complex and they're hard to understand. Um, 
So when we get these documents, they don't necessarily uh, apply to the specific situation in which the patient's in, or it might be unclear exactly what they meant in those directives. Right. So they're vague. Yeah, like so for example, in a, in a pulse form, a physician order for life-sustaining treatment, one of the options people are given is to say whether or not they want to be resuscitated if they have a cardiac arrest. And so someone might check, no, I don't. But that form doesn't tell you sort of what scenario they were playing in their head when they made that decision. And so you don't know whether or not what they intended to communicate when they checked that box is in fact applies to the situation they're in now. Maybe they were imagining that they were you know, at the end of life with some terminal illness, and that's when they didn't want to have resuscitation, but that is, in fact, not the situation they're in currently, but we have no way of knowing what they meant, and the advanced directive can't tell us. Right. Advanced directives typically don't give rationales, right? You don't, that would be a sort of long form. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, it's just a checkbox, and so we have no idea why they checked that particular box and what circumstance they were imagining. Most people imagine the end of life, but in most states, advanced directives apply whenever the patient loses capacity, not just at the end of life, making it a little bit more complicated when they apply and when they don't. Mm-hmm. And so we also know that um, in reality, physicians don't pay a lot of attention to advanced directives. Even though we push them and we say that they're so great, p- physicians tell us that they don't seem to influence their recommendations very often, maybe well, because they're vague. Yeah, but also because I think, you know, physicians' tendency is to, is to continue doing whatever they think might be useful. Mm-hmm. And when they get to the situation where continued treatment is not going to be useful or the next um, line of treatment is not going to be useful, that's when they begin asking about the advanced directive because right. they're hoping it's going to support a decision to stop. Right. Um, So we also know that most families don't talk about the kinds of decisions that are really relevant to to making these end-of-life decisions or decisions about life-sustaining treatment if the patient's incapacitated. It's just kind of a cultural thing. People don't like talking about these things. And even though we push for families to have these conversations maybe over Thanksgiving, it's just not a very pleasant conversation. And so a lot of families just really have no idea what their loved one would want. Yeah, and, and just as an addendum to that, very few people talk with their physician about their advanced directive either. Right. So we know that, um, we also know that families are not great predictors of what patients say they would want. So in these studies where, um, you know, they, we ask a particular person what they think they'd want, and then we ask the family what they think they would, that patient would say, Families aren't great at predicting that. They're maybe only slightly better than chance. Yeah, but better than physicians. Better than physicians, <laughs> um, but not, you know, no, nowhere near 100%, maybe more yeah. just a little over 50%. And that's even when they have had a conversation about what the patient might want at the end of life. So families aren't really great at predicting the, the sort of exact preferences of that patient for particular treatments. Yeah, yeah, but, but then on the other hand, when you ask patients why they want families to make decisions for them, one of the reasons they give is because they believe their family knows what they would want. Right. Hmm. So they don't talk about it, and families aren't great, but we still have this presumption that our our family members would know us best, would know how we would choose, and that might be a faulty assumption. Uh, 
We also know that it, um, making these kinds of decisions on behalf of somebody else really stresses people out. So when it's up to you, and often physicians put surrogates in this, this kind of decision-making, um, you know, what do you think that your father would want in this situation? And if you don't know, or even if you do know, it can be a very stressful situation. It feels like you're making life and death choices for somebody you really love, and that's hard on people. Yeah, and of course, this is also one of the rationales given for people completing advanced directives is that it lifts a burden uh, off family members um, who have to make these really hard choices. And if they somehow know what mom would want, um, it'll be much, much easier on them. And so mom is motivated then for their for family's sake to complete an advanced directive, hoping that that will somehow make it easier. Right, and, and surely for some families that does, but that's just not universally true. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you think you know what mom would have wanted, to make a decision that leads to the end of her life is still a stressful, hard yeah, decision to yeah. make. It feels like you're killing mom. It can feel like that, people. yeah. So there is some evidence. Um, so the uh, PPP is in its infant position right now. We haven't done a lot of, there hasn't been a lot of um, survey data on it, but there is some evidence that suggests that it actually might be better at predicting what a patient would actually want than family members themselves. So we have kind of this nascent data showing us that it might be helpful in, in situations which it's not super clear to families or surrogates what the patient would want. Yeah, so let's imagine that's true. Let's imagine that we've got a PPP instrument that at least across some range of, of interventions and, and clinical circumstances can, can predicts what people say would have said they would, want, would have wanted. Um, how, could, how can we use that? I mean, should should we use it? I mean, how should we use it? So, I mean, just to start yeah. off, one thing, one situation that occurs to me that you and I have seen quite a bit is that you know, elderly patient in the nursing home, um, probably pretty severely demented, who has no family, um, no friends and family have long since died or drifted away, and so there's nobody who knows her. She doesn't have a living will or a durable power of attorney. She'll probably end up with a court-appointed guardian who knows nothing about her. And so if you had enough information about her from her medical record and other things like that, with a PPP, you might be able to say with some certainty whether or not she'd want to be put on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. That could be very useful information in some of the situations we've been involved in. That's right. We call these patients unbefriended patients, which yeah. is actually a terrible term. <laughs> we should come up with a new one. But they're unbefriended, meaning they just don't have anyone to speak for what kind of person they were and what, what they think they would want. So in those scenarios, it's very difficult often to um, get any physicians to agree to stop life-sustaining treatments um, because they're afraid that they just don't know. There's really no evidence that of what they would want. And and those are sometimes the toughest cases because, like you said, the court-appointed guardian will have never met this patient, so they don't know what they would want either. And then we have a can often get involved in the courts, and it can be complicated. Right, right. So, I mean, the, the court-appointed guardian may be pretty risk-adverse about making these life-or-death decisions, and so mm -hmm. the default option is just full speed ahead. Um, and a PPP, the evidence that a PPP could provide might actually tilt that balance back in a direction that's more likely to be in accordance with what that person would want. That's right. good. So that might be the sort of most obvious use 
of a PPP. Um, we also certainly have experienced um, families who are asked to make these decisions for a, for a patient who doesn't have an advanced directive, who really, like we said before, have never had this kind of conversation and really just say, I have no idea what my family member would want. And so this could provide them with some extra kind of data, some empirical evidence showing what, what the patient might have wanted, and it can give them some more assurance um, if they have no idea. Mm -hmm. Right, and it can also, I think, that information might also serve as a way to draw them, draw their attention out of their grief, which may in fact incline them to continue to do everything. Mm -hmm. um, it will give them some other focus for their decision making, which might help them make a decision that's probably going to be more in line with what the patient would want. Right. These are stressful times on families. Yeah. And oftentimes being asked to make a really important decision is difficult in the midst of that grief. We also know that lots of families are very conflicted. You know, maybe they've had the conversation, maybe they haven't. But when it really comes down to it, what that person would want in any particular circumstance is difficult. And so you might sort of waver back and forth. Well, you know, my loved one said this, but they also said this. And at the end of the day, I don't know what that means about the specific treatment that we're talking about, whether they'd want it or not. And so the uh, PPP could help just to give some more evidence to that family as well. Mm -hmm. So there also might be families though that do think they know what the patient would want, and yet they remain conflicted only because it's a tough decision. And so having that kind of extra evidence would help them as well, even if they aren't as conflicted as, as the previous family. Mm -hmm. One more piece of evidence to say, yes, I'm doing the right thing. And that can be a potential comfort to families. Yeah, so how, how about another situation? So I'm imagining a situation which we also sometimes encountered of a patient who has an advanced directive that is pretty specific about not wanting something, or it might be a ventilator or whatever. But the, and they have a durable power of attorney and the durable power of attorney, who may be a family member often is, says, oh, don't pay any attention to that. Mm -hmm. you, know, I, you know, she didn't really mean that, or you know, we've since had some other conversations, and so I'm pretty sure that that's not what she would want mm -hmm. if we could ask her. Um, can I use the PPP there to determine what the likelihood is that the durable power of attorney is really representing what the patient would want? If I can produce evidence that that um, confirms that the patient would want exactly what she said she wanted. I mean, this is where I think it gets a lot more controversial. So initially, I think the PPP was conceived as a, as a supplement to share decision-making between the surrogate and the clinicians, which is ideally what we want, is everybody involved helping to make the right decision for the patient. To override what a surrogate or even a DPOA would say gets you into much more treacherous territory there mm -hmm. because you know sometimes it is the case that as we said advanced directives seem to say something or we might intuit they're saying something we might interpret them to be saying something but then a family member or that durable power of attorney can say wait a minute i was there when she filled out this advanced directive we had a conversation about it and actually how you're interpreting it is wrong yeah that'd be the exception rather than the rule though right? <laughs> it would be um <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, sometimes people who are assigned as a surrogate or a DPOA flagrantly 
disregard them um, in favor of their own preference, which is mm-hmm. not what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Really, the the job of the surrogate decision maker is to make decisions that the patient, him or herself, would have made, not to make decisions for them, to make decisions they would have made. Right. And so when that's their obligation and they're making decisions the patient wouldn't have made, or we have evidence to think that they're making decisions contrary to what the patient would have wanted, that's when it's you know, you really have to get with that surrogate and, and remind them of their responsibility and and potentially even remove them as surrogate if they're not making good decisions for the patient that the patient would have made. Well, I, I said, I mean, I, I want to back up a little bit because I want to make a distinction between using the PPP to override the surrogate's decision um, or using the PPP to advise the surrogate's mm-hmm. decision uh, or to um, maybe, maybe sort of maybe confront, that's too strong a word, uh, maybe, but certainly not override, because the PPP is not gonna have any legal authority, certainly. Certainly. Advanced directives do have at least some legal authority, so we're not gonna do that, but we might be able to say, well, wait a minute, Um, you know, we have reasons to think that, given the kind of person your mother is, what we know of her, at least, she would not want what you're asking us to do. So let's talk a little bit more then about what your reasons are for thinking she would want this. So it'd be a a way of sort of confronting the surrogate with evidence, some evidence that indicates that they might not be quite right about what their family would want. Is that, Mm -hmm. would that be okay? Yeah, I mean, I think then you get into the logistics of how, who's gonna bring that up and how are they gonna bring it up? But, you know, it might be that the physician or even a clinical ethicist would meet, and this would be a segue into that conversation because those conversations are hard to start without being confrontational, mm-hmm. right? So you're sitting down, you're you're thinking in the back of your head, we just don't know that you're making the decision that this patient would have made. How do you address that? And maybe one way you can address that is to say, you know, we have this other kind of evidence. What do you think about that? And and yeah. is your mother like? this group of people. I mean, so the evidence we have suggests that people somewhat like your mother would want this right? rather than that. So let's let's talk about that. What do you think of that? Yeah, it just would have to be done very carefully, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, but it could potentially be something to be brought up in those kinds of conversations, sure. Okay. Well, then let's segue from there into what are the debates about PPP? You know, what, what What might people say against it? Why might people not want to use it? Um, sort of maybe on theoretical grounds, but also really practical grounds. Yeah. So what do we know about the detractors from this? Well, so so one of, the, one of the points that people make is that the patient preference prediction is not the process, it's not an advanced, it's not the creation of advanced directive. That when someone creates an advanced directive, they through, go through an entirely different process than we use when we're applying uh, or developing the PPP. Um, So in the PPP, we might discover that uh, African-Americans are more likely to want um, aggressive care at the end of life, say. But when an African-American completes their advanced directive, they don't choose certain options because they're African-American. They don't say, oh, well, because I'm black, I think I'll do this. Mm -hmm. They choose it for much more personal reasons, the same kind of reasons largely that other people will have. And so 
you can't think of the PPP as representing or somehow replicating the process of developing an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other disanalogy is that certainly when we're appointing a durable power of attorney, uh, selecting a family member to represent us, we are not just, um, we are acting, it's an act of trust. Because they're our family, because they love us, we trust them, and we also care about them. You know, we, we, we want them to have some role in making decisions about us because we're concerned about the, how difficult it may be for them and recognize, perhaps, that that difficulty may, may justifiably lead them to make decisions that wouldn't be exactly what we would want, but we also care about them. So when we create that advanced directive, we're kind of doing two things. We're entrusting our family to make decisions for us because we love and care for them. Um, we're also trying to, hoping that they will also take into consideration what we ourselves may have said we wanted, but we recognize that there may be a tension between those two things, and we're gonna trust them to figure out how to resolve that tension. So a PPP doesn't do any of that. Right. So how can it replace an advanced directive? And maybe it shouldn't. So I think we said at the beginning, though, that you know, this is actually most helpful as, as an aid in the decision-making process and not as a, as a replacement for an advanced directive um, or as any way potentially overriding advanced directives. Um, but you're right that this, you know, the granularity, the particularity of an advanced directive is, is probably going to be more helpful than sort of generalizations about sociodemographic groups. Um, so in that sense, it's... it's I don't think it's meant to replace the advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And the logic of it is certainly different. So that's something we'll have to think about. And again, there's all these methodological problems that you mentioned at the beginning of, of how exactly we get sort of representation and what that'll look like. So it's it's something to think about as the PPP kind of thinks about what it, it's going to ask and how it's going to ask it. Yeah. I mean, the other, I'm not sure this is a philosophical problem, but it is an ethical and practical problem is that when you have family at the scene, um, I'm not talking about the unbefriended patient who has nobody, but someone who has family, whether or not they have a durable power of attorney, but you have them at the scene, you're making a decision in real time. Mm -hmm. The PPP is gonna be created by posing hypothetical scenarios to people. Those scenarios are gonna necessarily be somewhat simplified and stripped. There's no way they're gonna correspond exactly to whatever the medical circumstances might be of a particular person. Um, so you lose that contextual um, relevance when you're trying to apply the PPP. You don't really know what that person would say about this much more complicated situation. You might know what they would say about that hypothetical scenario that you mm -hmm. used when you created the PPP. But they might make a very different decision given the complexity of the circumstances that they're in now, but we have no way of knowing that. So there's a danger then that we apply the sort of simple-minded um, algorithm of the PPP to circumstances that are much too complicated for it to really handle. And so we're thrown back then on relying on the family. So if we're gonna do that anyway, why use the PPP? Right. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Do you have an answer to your own question? <laughs> no. No. Um, and, you know, I don't think it sort of 
foundationally undermines PPP in such a way that then it's useless. But mm. but these are considerations for you know how it gets applied and how we think through even how to construct the kinds of surveys that would give us the data that we think is most important in these scenarios. Um, we also think that you know we're, we're generally talking potentially to healthy people who can't imagine what it's like to be quite that ill. It's very difficult for any of us to imagine you know, what it would be like to be so incapacitated we couldn't make our own decisions. Mm -hmm. So we're asking healthy people who uh, have their full capacity what kinds of decisions they would make in a circumstance they've never experienced or probably have never experienced. Right. And we know from a lot of data that people just aren't great at predicting how bad or how good something might be. So we, we tend to over-predict how, how bad a circumstance will be um, when in reality we might be able to cope with it. So we just know that people aren't great at predicting yeah. their future states of unhealth and, and what it'll mean to them. You know, that, again, I don't think undermines everything about PPP, but we just have to keep in mind that in, in reality, if people could speak for themselves in these uh, incapacitated states, they might say, they might change their minds about what they would want. Yeah, well, that's well, just hard to know. In where they wouldn't be incapacitated. Well, that's right. <laughs> so it's sort and, of impossible and, to know. And these difficulties apply to the use of advanced directives too. Right. I mean, we can't, none of us can foresee the future with complete clarity or know exactly what we in fact would want at some later time because our preferences and attitudes and all kinds of other things change in between. Um, so I don't, I, you know, this is a problem for the PPP, but it seems to me equally a problem for advanced directives. It's just one of the inherent limitations that we have to work under. That's right, and it's been debated amongst bioethicists and philosophers for decades something we call precedent autonomy. How could you possibly predict what you would want, what your preferences would be, what your values would be if your circumstances totally changed? Might you not change your mind? And so this yeah. has been, this we is... Just have, we just don't have a way of testing that hypothesis we in do the not. case of inca incapacitated people. We do not. All we have is evidence of how people do change their minds when they do still have capacity, but they become severely disabled. And we know that people are much better... Um, they're, they say their quality of life is better than they would have predicted. So we have that kind of evidence, but we can't necessarily apply that directly to the incapacitated patient because, right. you know, by definition, they can't tell us what they want. Yeah, right. So I think, you know, some of this is kind of cautionary that we have to be really cautious about using the PPP um, or giving the PPP an authority that, that reaches well beyond what its capacities are. Um, you know, so thinking of PPPs as advisory, perhaps, rather than um, uh, decisional uh, or dispositive, that they will somehow settle disputes or override uh, family or other surrogate decision makers, probably is reaching too far. Probably, and then and then I think we also need to think about you know, is this is this just information? Is this somehow a default? So it could it be used as a weak default? You know, we have this information about someone like your loved one, and here it is, and we think that that's probably right, but if you oppose that surrogate or family member, okay, that's fine. Or might it be a stronger default? Um, this is what we're gonna do unless you give us a really compelling reason or narrative about your loved one that would override what the PPP seems to suggest. And so a weak default versus a strong default can be another way we sort of try to parse how the PPP would be used in a, a particular situation. And of course, that weak default is just going to be a little bit easier 
to mm-hmm. justify than mm-hmm. even than a strong default, where we demand compelling reasons not to use the PPP as the decision yeah. maker unless the family can give us a good reason. And of course, a strong default is likely to escalate what may already be a adversarial situation in the intensive care unit. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've experienced it can get very difficult hostile even sometimes Mm -hmm. when the clinicians are recommending one thing the family wants another thing and they hit an impasse and it gets it can get heated so you know using other kinds of evidence about your loved one against what you say you know about them might not help alleviate those complicated situations between families and clinicians yeah i mean it just occurs to me that you know one of the so what this, one of the things the support studies showed, and I think you mentioned this earlier on, is that the physicians don't really look to advanced directives. Mm-hmm. You know, so adva- you can have an advanced directive on the on the chart or in the record, but it doesn't really shape the plan of care until it suits the physician's um, you know views about what's possible. Um, but we could be more prescriptive about this and expect, and we should be expecting actually that when there's advanced directive, there should be something in the chart where the physician indicates how, whether and how that advanced directive is going to be used in the plan of care. And maybe you could do something like that with a PPP so that when you've got evidence via the PPP about what someone's preferences might be, the expectation would be that the physician would have to say something about how that information was going to be used in developing a plan of care. That would be a really positive outcome of the PPP because, as you and I both know, having these goals of care conversations with families um, is not only difficult, it very rarely happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the well, plan of care at, just goes forward. At the bitter end, it'll happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't happen until, you know, there's really nothing else to do. And then, and then the physician wants to have a conversation about, you know, treatments and what's working and not working, what the goals of those treatments are. But really, they should be having them much, much sooner than that mm-hmm. so that, you know, this other kind of evidence can be brought to bear on the plan going forward rather than just at the impasse. Yeah, right. Exactly. So some people might also worry that in the implementation of a PPP, we're falling into more stereotypes, right? So, you know, might we not be sort of reinforcing uh, potentially even oppressions generated by our society that that make it so that some people get more care, some people get less care um, based on, you know, their position in society. So do we worry about, you know, reproducing injustices in our society by stereotyping certain groups saying oh african americans would want this or women would of a certain age would want this might might that worry us and i think it could worry us yeah well i think so i think part part of the answer goes to the methodology methodology so we would want to have a um um a survey tool that gathers not just little isolated pieces of information, but lots of information so that you could see how having, being low income, for example, um, the effect that that might have on your treatment choices is mitigated by something else about you. Mm-hmm. So that the picture that gets painted from the PPP is not single-minded, it's, it's complex uh, and rich. Um, you know, I think the other, the other response I'd want to make is that it's not an. It's not a. If in fact it turns out that part of the reason we're going, we think that we should withdraw care from this, um, you know, poor African American 
woman without a college education um, is because of the data that BPV provides. Um, and that gives us confidence that that's what she would want. That's not oppression. That's respect. Mm-hmm. Right, and it might even potentially undermine some of our stereotypes. What if, what if through this information we find out that groups that we thought wanted certain things actually don't want those things mm-hmm. or do want things we didn't think they wanted? So it might help us to gather to sort of subvert some of those stereotypes by gathering lots of information. Oh, yeah. So at least a potential there. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's something that needs to be continually thought of, like you said, as we, as we think about methodology for the PPP. Well, and you mentioned this, Tom, but I think perhaps the the strongest um, debate occurring amongst bioethicists is really about about surrogates and about accuracy and autonomy. And you know, we we like you said, don't necessarily choose surrogates to make decisions for us simply because we think they'll be accurate about choosing what we would choose. We also choose them because well, we love them and we make decisions often with them, and so our decisions affect each other. Mm-hmm. And so there are more complicated reasons than simply, you know, they choose what I would choose mm-hmm. than for the reason we choose circuits. And and potentially a PPP is giving us more accurate information. And yet, you know, if you asked me, would you want your loved ones to be able to override your own decisions? I might say yes in a lot of circumstances. And the PPP simply can't account for that. Right. And, and in fact, there is some evidence that when people are asked whether or not they will give their families leeway to make a decision other than the one that they themselves said that they wanted, um, typically a majority will say, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, I think that, that, you know, that leeway does, when I say I give someone leeway, I don't mean that they don't have to pay any attention mm-hmm. to what I said I wanted. Um, you know, it's not that I think that, that when I say give my family leeway, I'm not giving them permission or saying you should always you should override my decision and pay no attention to it, uh, or pay no attention to what I would want. I recognize that that's only one of the things that they might need to or want to take into account, and I'm giving them permission to make that judgment, not permission to ignore me. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, I still want you to pay attention to the things I always said I wanted, but. You know, most of us would say we recognize that in difficult situations, we would want to give allowance to our loved ones to, to struggle, to maybe mm-hmm. think through and take more time. Um, so not overriding everything we ever wanted, but certainly taking other considerations in, into mind as they do that, which again is why the PPP is probably most useful in an aid to surrogate decision making exactly. and not as the chief way we decide for patients. Right, right. Well, I think that that's all I had to say about the PPP for now. <laughs> well, it has been fun. It has been fun. <laughs> and I hope everyone keeps keeps uh, up on this. We are launching um, our own study. It's only yeah, in the very beginning stages. Yeah, yeah very, we're working on it. Very beginning stages, yeah. Yeah. So we will hopefully um, report back once we have some more information. Yeah, stay tuned. Thank you for joining us today please visit us online at bioethics.msu.edu and follow us on Twitter at MSU Bioethics. This episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics was produced and edited by Liz McDaniel.